0: Well, good evening and welcome again to Sunday night service here at Moody Church. It's so great to have you joining us and worshiping alongside with us tonight. A few weeks ago, my wife and I had some errands to run. And so after work one weeknight, we headed out to the northwest suburbs where we had to go to a few different places and pick up some things. We made it out, had good time, got our errands done. And then we're like, oh man, we are hungry. Let's just grab a bite to eat out here before we head back in to the city. And we were in an area that if you would have asked me, hey, where should you go where there's a lot of different restaurants? Like this was the area right by one of the largest malls in Chicago area. Tons of restaurants. And so we were like, oh, what what do we want? Oh, let's go. One of our favorite restaurants is out there. But I was like, well, things are kind of weird. So I looked it up. "Mm." Can't eat in the restaurant, only carry out. And we're like, okay, let's try. How about Mexican food? Oh, there's some great Mexican restaurants here. We looked up two different places. Can't eat in the restaurant. We're like, oh, that's a bummer. Oh, how about Mediterranean? So we looked up a Mediterranean. Can't eat in the restaurant. No joke. My wife and I looked up probably eight different restaurants before finally we found one restaurant where you could go and eat inside to have a meal. This is kind of the normal in our world now, but if you would have asked me last fall if I would have had to look up to figure out if a restaurant was open at 6.30 on a weeknight so that I could eat a meal in there, I would have said, you're crazy. You're crazy, right? That, that would never happen, but we live in kind of a new world, Right, and a phrase that's repeated way too often that people are trying to use to describe what it's like right now is the new normal. Right, as things have changed, and some of it we don't know if this is just for the time being, and some of it we don't know is this just permanent and how life will be now. But our world is filled with uncertainties. All these things are changing as we kind of live in a different reality than most of us have ever expected or would have thought even a year or nine months ago that we would be living in. Well, the story of Noah and where we find ourselves tonight is we wrap up our series in Noah, looking at Genesis chapter nine, the last 10 verses or so finish off this story and they start by looking at Noah in this new world that he finds himself in. Noah had gone through the flood as we've looked at that the last four weeks gone through the flood God provided for him made a covenant of peace to him and to his descendants and then now we get this kind of aftermath story in this new world in which Noah lives and as Noah enters into this new world, the story tonight is, is quite similar, actually, in a lot of themes to the first world story that we get back in Adam. There's so many overlaps of key words and phrases here as this emphasis that kind of Noah is the new Adam living into the new world. Noah and Adam have the same profession as workers of the ground, cursing, and blessing are both prominent themes in this passage. Both of them experience the shame of nakedness. Both of them, their sin results in family strife. And both of them, the words saw and they know played key roles in kind of the theme of the story. So these key words kind of tie Noah to Adam and that their similarities, even though they add, excuse me, Noah, lives in this kind of new world, there's still certainties that go back just as they were in Adam's world. Still they are in Noah's world. And tonight we're going to look at certainties that we can have in an uncertain world. Certainties that we know will be true even in times of upheaval, of great change and uncertainty. Certainties that we can hold on to. This is in Genesis chapter 9 a interesting story right it's it's when you think of the life of Noah you've probably heard or read most of the things that we've talked about the last few weeks this one though often gets left out it's like we gloss over it and we head off to the next part of Genesis but we can't ignore it I mean first it shows the truth of the Bible and as we're going to discover tonight it's actually pretty significant some of the themes it's reinforcing It also, though, functions, I think, for a few reasons. First, it shows us just how real scripture is, right? If this story was made up, you wouldn't cast Noah in this light. You wouldn't have this story in there if it was just a work of fiction, And then secondly, from the theme of the whole book of Genesis, the focus begins to shift off of Noah to his children, right? To that next generation. And this story starts to highlight for us what that will look like, that life will look like after Noah and the next generation to come after him. So we're going to pick up the story tonight in Genesis chapter 9, starting at verse 18, which says this. The sons of Noah. So, shift clearly focusing here, right, to Noah's kids, who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Now, this kind of parentheses is not just here because, like, oh, hey, by the way, one of them had a son. But this is start to meant to highlight, hey, this is something to pay attention to. If you actually know the context in which Moses, who's the author of the book of Genesis, writes this book, it's given to the people of Israel on their time of wilderness journeying as they're headed towards the promised land. After they had come out of Egypt, about to enter into the promised land that God had provided for them. And who were the residents of this land? Who lived there before the people of Israel were to go in in the time of Joshua? And after that, it was the Canaanites. And that's why Moses is highlighting here throughout the people of Canaan because these are the people who which they are about to encounter. So Moses is giving them a little bit of a history lesson here on the people that they are soon to meet. So the sons are come off and these are the names. It says also, these three were the sons of Noah and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Now this is, these two verses are fairly short and they can seem almost as like just something to gloss over before we get to But I love how here we're promised at the beginning of the story that God would provide for Noah and his family a way through. And indeed, we see here that he did. We see here this promise that that the people of the whole earth would be dispersed through these three. And if you know your Bible, if you just look over like two chapters later in Genesis 11, what do the people try and do? They try and build a tower and stay together, but there's already this sense here like, nope, you are not going to stay together. When God said to multiply and fill the earth, it was going to happen, and God knows that even before the events of Genesis chapter 11. What these short verses remind us of is this first certainty that we can hold on to in uncertain times, which is this, that God is Sovereign. God is sovereign. What, what we mean by that is, God is the ruler and over all things. All things are in his control and happen according to his plan. That God oversaw the flood so that Noah and his family would survive. God knew that Noah's family would disperse and fill the earth, and nothing that they could do could stop God's plan. God is sovereign, and that's a certainty even in an uncertain world. God is in control of all things, just as God had promised to Noah and to his family, so it came to be. God will fulfill his commands in the earth. God will fulfill his promises to us. God will carry out his will across the world. See, God is not a passive bystander to the things of this world, but he is sovereign over everything. He's over all things. Now, the last few months, a lot of my evenings have been taken up watching playoff basketball. And the fact that I'm from Southern California and cheer for a certain team probably has to do a large amount with how much basketball I have watched. But one of the things that I love, particularly in watching playoff basketball, is just the dynamics of playing the same opponent so many times in a row. See, throughout the season, as you know, in a regular season, you, you play a team two, three, maybe four times over the course of six months or so. So you're not really thinking about one particular team, but you're thinking about all the different teams that you have to prepare for. When suddenly in the playoffs, because you're just facing one team over and over and over again, so the first team wins the right amount of games, is a phrase that you'll hear from coaches and players all the time is, well, we just need to keep making adjustments we need to make adjustments and it's, I always find it fascinating watching as each team starts to adjust and to react what the other team is doing. And you see it because they're playing the same opponent all the time. It's just all these short adjustments that happen, kind of tweaking and reacting to what the other people are doing. Sometimes this is how people think about God. That God is up in heaven and he's watching us here on earth and he just kind of sees what we do and goes, oop, I need to react to this. Oop, they did this. Now I need to change and do this. Like God is somehow reacting, but we're the ones who are ultimately in control. But that's not the God of scripture. The God of scripture is a God who is sovereign above all things, even things that we find it hard to comprehend that we don't understand from our perspective how they could ever be in the good will of God, like a worldwide flood. But God is still sovereign. God is in control of all things. And I just want to remind us of that truth tonight with all the uncertainty that we have faced in the last six months. And who knows, right, what the next months and years going forward will look like. God is sovereign. God's in control. Nothing has caught him off guard. And so we can trust him even when our plan doesn't, when his plan, excuse me, doesn't make sense to us. So God is sovereign over all things that the sons of Noah have survived out onto the earth. Verse 20 begins really the narrative for tonight. It says this, Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. The second certainty that we see here played out in this narrative is this certain truth that man is sinful. God is sovereign over all things. And another thing that is certainly true in our world as it was in Noah's, as it was in Adam's, is that man is sinful. We see here that Noah becomes a cultivator of the ground. And then he soon, quick after this, it feels like becomes drunk off of what he has grown. Now, Noah's actions here are not specifically condemned, but they're also not condoned. Right? Noah is not left here for free. If you read throughout scripture, it's clear right, that drunkenness is a sin. Like That is undeniable that drunkenness is a sin. And so Noah is certainly at fault in what he has done. He is kind of the initiator here of what happens. But Noah's sin is not the main point of the story. Remember, if we looked at verse 18, the sons now come into focus. And so the focus of the story isn't on Noah's sin, but on his three sons and their reaction to this sin. And the first person we see response here is Ham, who is sinful in his response to his father. See, it's interesting as we think here, well, what exactly does Ham do wrong? What exactly has he done here that's sinful? Well, it's clear here that by his actions and seeing his father in the state and going out and kind of telling isn't like this, this idea of, Hey guys, I'm concerned about dad, but it's this idea of, of gossip, of almost laughing at, of disrespecting because of what has happened to his father. And Ham's sin here is disrespect and dishonoring to his father. See, this idea of Noah laying naked, while it probably was a physical reality as well, but nakedness was seen in Hebrew culture as a shameful thing. It's why often when someone is laid naked before someone, it means that their guilt and their shame has been fully and openly exposed. When someone is naked, it's not a positive thing. It's seen here as dishonorable. And Ham also here violates what is known now as the fifth commandment, as we see in the 10 commandments that come later in the Bible, right? To honor your father and mother. But Ham disregards this and he is not honoring in his actions towards his father. See, the commands of scripture are given for our benefits and we would do well to obey them. But sometimes we treat the commands of Scripture, maybe even those that we don't deem as quite as important, as not really commands, but suggestions. We treat Scripture sometimes like, well, it's a suggestion, and if I want to pick that up, I can, but that's not necessarily how I have to live my life. We almost treat sometimes the Bible like we treat nutritional or diet advice. Right? You can find almost anyone who will tell you anything about diet advice. Right, like You'll find someone who will swear that low carbs are the way to go. And you just got to cut carbs out of your life. You can find someone, though, who tells you that low fat is the way to go. Or you could find someone who says, no, 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 you need to become a vegetarian. And someone will say, nope, not that. You just need to cut out salty foods, but make sure to eat lots of meat. This is actually good for you. You can find someone who will say, no, 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 no. The key is intermittent fasting. To go for long periods of time throughout the day where you don't eat and just eat in a short period of time. And you can find people who will say, no, 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 no. The key is to eat all the time. To eat like six, seven, eight, nine small meals throughout the day. And ultimately what we realize when it comes to these things is, man, we just need to to pick what's best for us, right? We just need to pick what works best for us. But what sometimes happens is that we can take this approach and attitude to God's word. Oh, I, I, I like that command. I'm going to pick and I'm going to apply that one to my life. And then we can read other parts of God's word and be like, ah, yeah, I don't like that. I'm, I'm just not going to worry about that. I'm going to disregard that. This story is a reminder that we cannot minimize or excuse sin in our lives, no matter how significant or insignificant it may be. See, in Genesis chapter four, after Adam and Eve sinned, Cain murdered his brother Abel. And I think all of us could agree, yeah, bad sin. We don't want to do that. But then we could see this act of shaming and dishonoring his father. And it could be easy for us to think, "Well, well, what's the big deal? See, sin is always a big deal. Sin is always a big deal. And at our heart, at our root, man is sinful. And we need to take our sin seriously and not to minimize it or, or to categorize it, but to take our sin seriously just as God takes our sin seriously. And so this is the response of the first son, right? Of Ham towards his father. Well, verse 23 shows us the response of the other two brothers. It says this, then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. Notice this emphasis on their not seeing. They, they have done intentional things to, to honor their father, even in his state, so they don't bring dishonor even by looking at him. Literally the picture is like they put it on and walked backwards, figured out where he was and dropped it on top of him. The third certainty that this passage shows us, even in uncertain times is this, that obedience is significant. Obedience to God is always significant in our lives. And these two brothers, Shem and Japheth, act in an obedient way, honoring God and honoring their father, even when their brother did not act in an obedience or in a godly way. See, all obedience, just as all sin is significant, all obedience is important as well. We need to, to realize that obedience to God is important in every single area of our lives. And sometimes what could happen is as we think about the sovereignty of God, as we kind of started with that, that God is over, in control of all things, The temptation could be then, well, that kind of minimizes what I need to do. I don't need to be obedient. Like if God's going to do what he's going to do in the world, why does my obedience matter? Obedience is always significant. I love what, what John Calvin has said this. He says, we cannot rely on God's promises without obeying his commandments. We cannot rely on God's promises without obeying his commandments. And while the obedience here may seem trivial, walking over with a blanket and throwing it over someone, there is no such thing as trivial obedience. There is no such thing as just trivial obedience to God's word. See, obedience here, as we're going to see in the next few verses, looks good because we see the consequences of it. That for two sons it meant good things, that for one son it meant really bad things. But sometimes obedience in our lives can be difficult because we're not sure of what the consequences may be. In fact, there's times where when we think of if I obey God in this, it may actually lead to risky consequences. The consequences could be unknown to me if I actually obey God in this. And it can be hard at times to obey God when we don't see what the end result of our obedience will lead to. I just want to remind you tonight that wherever you are, whatever situation you may be facing, that what God calls his people to is a life of obedience, a life of honoring and and pleasing God before pleasing others. And as many other pastors have said before, that, that our call as Christians is to obey God and leave the consequences to him. That's our call, not to worry about what happens if we obey, but to obey and leave the consequences to God. So if you're facing a decision tonight, no matter how seemingly significant or insignificant, I just want to urge you that what God calls us to is a life of obedience. We've seen this throughout all of Noah's life before, right? He was seen as someone who obeyed God. We see it with these two brothers that they obeyed and honored the commandments that God had placed on this earth. That they were honoring to their father and obeyed God. And for us, whatever we may be facing, we need to act to live in obedience to him. So the two brothers come and they cover their father's nakedness. The story then concludes here in these last few verses, starting at verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, again, this is echoes back to the story right that Adam and Eve knew that they were naked it's the same word there' this realization of what sin had happened. <clears throat> he said this, "Cursed be Canaan, interesting, right? not Ham, but Canaan, his son." A servant of servants shall be to his, he shall be to his brothers. Verse 26. He also said, blessed though be the Lord, the God of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. So Noah here pronounces blessings on two of his sons for their obedience and cursing on one of them for his disobedience. The story continues after the flood, Noah lived 350 years, all the days of Noah were 950 years, and then he died. Chapter 10 transitions to a different story, continues on with the descendants of Noah. But this last, these, this last section here is it talks about the blessings and the curses that as a result of people's actions remind us of this fourth certainty in our world, that justice is sure. That justice, because justice is not served just by human individuals, justice ultimately comes from God. The justice is sure to happen as a result of sin and the consequences of sin or as a result of living a life pleasing to God and the consequences that flow from that. This is a interesting passage here, right? As, as Noah calls out these curses on Canaan and the blessings to the other two sons. Again, a reminder that, that Canaan specifically here is mentioned because these are the people that Israel is about to meet. It gives background to the wickedness of the people of the land that they are about to enter. I do, as we just are working through this passage, need to stop and comment that this passage for, for some has been used in horrible ways. The people have seen here how how Canaan twice here is told to be a servant, or some translations would say a slave to his brothers. And what some people have tried to do is make this an ethnic reading of scripture. They've tied to try people of certain ethnicities to fall from the line of Canaan and the line of Ham and said, look, certain people of certain ethnic backgrounds are then God-given rights that they should be slaves and that's what they are deserving of. That is a ridiculous interpretation of scripture and has no merit at all. The focus of this story and the cursing on Canaan is no way involved because of his his color or his ethnicity or any of his descendants after him. It all has to do with his conduct, his wickedness of his heart. And so it's the wicked practices that characterize the Canaanites and the descendants after them, not at all their ethnicity. So a reading of that type in scripture needs to be just thrown out that has nothing to do with what Genesis 9 is trying to say. And in this language here of blessings and curses, justice is done. Justice as a judgment for sin and as honor for righteousness. Justice is done here in this passage to the one son who disobeyed, And to the two sons who honored and who obeyed God. And then, as you can see, the story of Noah ends. When I first started studying this passage, as we were thinking of going through the life of Noah, I read through these couple chapters multiple times. And every time I would read these 10 verses or so, I would just end and be like, man, why is this story here? Like, why is this divinely story? Like, why did God want us to have this, what seemingly is almost like this add-on story at the end of one of the most epic and well-known stories of scripture of Noah and the fold? Like, what is going on? The, the story is, I think, twofold. First, it reminds us that the new world that, that we live in, that Noah lives in, that we still live in today, is somewhat similar still to the old world. And this, this story actually just in these few verses is actually a mini narrative of the themes of the flood story of a whole, all right? So this story of what's happening here with, with Noah and his sons is a short narrative of the whole overarching theme of the flood story. So get this, there's divine blessing given to certain people, right? A divine blessing to humanity at the start of the Noah story, and then at the end, right? When they come out of the ark, But human sin endangers this blessing. In the beginning of the story, it was all of the wickedness of the world. In this story, right, it's the sin of Ham that that endangers this divine blessing that has been given to them. There is a penalty for sin. That's what the flood was, right? A penalty for sin. And we see here the cursing of Ham. There's a penalty for sin. But even in the penalty for sin, there's divine mercy and, and forbearance to preserve and elect one to come from this family, right? That has been promised in Genesis chapter three, one would come who would overthrow sin and death. And even through this, we see that God provides in the flood. He saves Noah and his family from whom this one will come. And in this sin that we find here, God still preserves the family line so that the one would still come who would defeat sin and evil. So this story is here because it's a microcosm of the overall narrative of the flood story. And when you think about it, it's a reminder to us of just how salvation still works. See that God wants a relationship with you and with me. We have this divine calling on our lives. We've been made in the image of God, but sin, our sin gets in the way of it. It endangers this relationship that we could have with God. There's a penalty for our sin. There are consequences to our actions. But the Old Testament points to one who would come, who would bring salvation. And we live on the other side of that. Looking back, we can see that this seed that would come through Noah, that that is still yet to come, which is why God saved him, that that one to come is Jesus. Is, Is Jesus Christ. And we see in this story here in the flood, and then in the story we looked at tonight, that sin brings a curse and judgment on people. That's why sin is treated in such a way. And so as we think of justice being done, no matter what, it's a reminder to us that in salvation, justice is still done. Because your sin, my sin, brings upon us a curse and judgment Just like how the people of the flood did, just how like Ham did. It brought about curses, it brings curses on us. But for those of us who would believe in Jesus, we have this truth in Galatians chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That language of curse and blessing there again. See, this, these two stories, the flood story as a whole, and then this mini story that we looked at tonight, this short narrative, are reminders of this, that judgment comes through a result of sin. And that curses come on us because of that. But we know that when we trust in Jesus, he takes upon the curse of sin that we deserve. And so justice is sure, justice has been served. But here's the thing, if you believe in Jesus, you don't pay for your sin, he did. And God looks at Jesus and what he has done for us by becoming the curse for our sin. And God's justice has been served. These stories in Genesis aren't just cute stories. They're not just children's stories. They're not just stories that we should know, but they're stories that point to a savior, that point to salvation, that point to sin, but God's sovereignty over all things to provide a way of salvation for you and I. And that when we place our faith in Jesus, as that passage in Galatians says, he becomes a curse for our sin, and we receive the blessings of salvation. This is the story of Noah, that undeservedly God gives his grace to save through judgment. And that's the story of salvation today for you and I, that undeservedly in our sin, God is gracious and he provides a way of salvation. God, we do thank you that you are a gracious God, sovereign over all things, God, in that on the cross, justice for our sin was had and that Jesus took our place. Jesus became our curse so that we might be blessed forever through his sacrifice for us. We worship and we honor and we praise him tonight for what he has done. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.